Um, but before we get started, why don't we pray? Father, I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for you being a God that helps us break through Egypt's in our lives. Lord, we've all been or maybe now in bondage to something, but we thank you that you have the power to deliver us. And so, Lord, we celebrate you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Everyone that agree with that, say amen. I don't know where you are on the religious pendulum. You may be an agnostic or you may be an atheist. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Uh, you may be really, really religiously devout. But one thing I know that we all have in common is that we're seeking to improve our quality of life. Each of us. And your quality of life is so much more than your standard of living, which includes your income. But your quality of life is your income, and it's the totality of your well-being. And so that's why some of you get up in the morning and practice mindfulness. That's why others of you work out at 5.30 in the morning. That's why others of you are developing great eating habits. It's because you're trying to improve your quality of life over a number of different spectrums. And so because of that today, what I want to do is I want to give you three things or three principles that if you apply will optimize your life. Three principles. Here's what I believe. That if you apply these principles to your life, it will 10x the quality of it. Okay? Here they are, and then I'm going to describe them in detail as we go. Okay? The first one is stop making excuses. Amen? Yeah. Okay. Y'all like, yeah, I do need to stop making excuses. All right? Second one, put God first. And last one, work hard. I didn't get as many amens on that. I didn't. Y'all like, ah, I don't know about that. You mean work efficiently? I can do that. I can commit to that. But let's get to it. With that in mind, we're starting a new sermon collection in the book of Haggai. Somebody say Haggai. It's one of the most obscure books in the Bible, right? Right next to Zephaniah and Zechariah. But this short book packs a really, really powerful punch. And so before I read our passage today, let me kind of zoom you in to where we are in the redemptive narrative at this point. Uh, let's, let's go back to King Solomon. King Solomon was the third king of united Israel. And after his enemies were all subdued around him, he built this beautiful, wonderful edifice to worship called a temple. And let me tell you, people from all around the world came to visit it. It was beautiful. It had all these gold ornaments. I mean, it was a wonderful edifice to worship Yahweh. And then a king eventually died. His son Rehoboam took over. And then how many of you know that when your kids take over sometime that things don't go the way you anticipated? And so what happened was the people's hearts started to be turned away from God. They started to worship the deities of the surrounding nations like Dagon and Baal. And, and, and God was patient with them. He was like, I'm stalling you out. I'm being patient. But if you continue to go down this road of disobedience, I promise you that I'm going to bring judgment on this land. And so he sent them these alarm clocks to wake them up out of their spiritual stupor called prophets. He used them as instruments to communicate his message and so that people would stop serving themselves and start serving him, but none of them listened. And so in 587 B.C., he sent the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., and they came in and sieged Israel, and they obliterated it. Not only did they strip the Jews of their, their religious identity and their spiritual identity, but they also destroyed the temple. It was so bad that they knocked it down brick by brick and they melted all of the gold and they carried the group of people all the way back to Babylon. It was a terrible situation. And so they get to Babylon, 
But God promised them after 70 years, he was going to relieve them from Babylonian captivity. And so Babylon eventually falls to the Persian army, and then the newly minted king, whose name is Cyrus, read his name in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, that called him his anointed. And so it was a prophecy about him 600 years before he even walked the earth. And he said because of that, he felt the need to let the Jewish people go back and rebuild their land. And so you read about this in the book of Ezra, and you read about it in Nehemiah, how uh, these, these leaders left, and they went back and rebuilt the territory. It was really great. They started off really well. But how many of you know that it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish? Because you could come out of the gate really well, but stumble on the end. It's not really helpful. But here's the thing. So he raised, so they were to build a temple, but then the work got slowed because of the Samaritans, their cousins. You know how your family can be sometimes. <laughs> Uh, let me not go into that. I'll save that for our family series. Here we go. So the Samaritans were trying to hinder them. And so they laid the foundation of the building. They built the wall, but they hadn't rebuilt the temple in 16 years. And that's where we pick up in our passage today. I'm in the book of Haggai, verse 1. Let me start off. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now, it's interesting that he mentioned sixth month because the sixth month is when you would have offered a new moon harvest. Right? You would do that every month to give God glory for the provision that was about to happen. But they couldn't offer the provision because it wasn't any temple. And so they really weren't worshiping. Let me go on. So he goes on, the word of the Lord came through prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, these people, I like that. These people say the time has not come to build the house for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled house while this house lies in ruins? And now the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvest is little. You have eaten, but you have had not had enough to be satisfied. You drink and you never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but you never have enough to be warm. The wage earner puts his wages in a bag with holes in it. The Lord of Army says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hill, bring down the lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but it, didn't, but it amounted to little. And when you bought the harvest in your house, I ruined it. Somebody say, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord. Because my house lies in ruins. Each of you is busy with his own house. So that on this account, the skies have, with, have withdrew the dew and the land its crops. And I summoned a drought on the field and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and fresh oil and whatever the ground yields on people and animals. And on all the hand, all that your hand produces. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the word of the prophet because the Lord their God sent them. So the, so the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's direct declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and the spirit of all of the remnant of people, and they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Woo! May the Lord add a blessing to all of that reading I just did. 
man, I'm out of breath. I was, I was like, Lord, please let me get Sheltiel right, because somebody in here might want to name their baby that, right? So, so Haggai is used as an alarm clock to wake up the people. Now, here's the thing. We don't know much about him. We know that his name means like procession or festival. We know that he's mentioned like nine or so times, but God uses him to be the most uh, effective prophet in all of the scripture. He was the most effective one. He was the one that God used, the no-name one, the no-name prophet from the backwoods town was used by God to wake the people out up out of 16 years of spiritual inertia. Some of y'all missed your shout right there. Let me just tell you, you, you missed it. You, you missed it. Here's the thing. Haggai was from an obscure place. Haggai was a little bit older. We don't know anything about him. He's obscure, but just because you're obscure to others doesn't mean you're obscure from God. He knows you. And let me just tell you, like some of you think you need so much in order to be successful and to be used by the Lord. You're like, Lord, I need a famous family. God, I need a six-figure salary. God, I need an endorsement deal. I need, a, I need an endorsement from a thought leader. I need a gatekeeper. I need somebody to open up a door for me. And God is like, I've done more with less. You don't need all of those things. If I could use a prophet from the backwoods of Jerusalem to wake my people up and to spark a revival of repentance, surely I can use you at your job. Surely I can use you to impact people's lives. Are y'all hearing me today, church? God can use you in your brokenness. He can use you in your weariness. In fact, he takes delight in it. He's like, I know that you are a broken pot, but I like to put the strength of myself into you so that you can be healed and walk in the power and provision that God has for you. Let me go on. Verse 2, this is what it says. I think it starts off with a lot of humor. I love it. This is what the Lord, he says, the Lord of armies says this. When he says armies, or you might read the Lord of hosts, what it means is that our God really does fight for us because he's the commander of the heavenly army as well as the earthly armies. Are y'all hearing me? So when Jesus, that's why Jesus says when he was about to, when he was uh, standing before Herod, like, listen, don't you know that I can call down a whole uh, a pantheon of angels to fight for me? But I don't have to do that. Why? Because he knew that he was the Lord of hosts. That's what it is. So some of you are wondering, like, is God fighting for me? Does he have my back? Yes, because he's the Lord of armies. This is what he said. The Lord of armies says this. These people, I like that. That's like these kids. He sounds like an angry parent, doesn't he? These people, the reason I like this is because normally when he refers to his children, he calls them my children or my kids, right? He doesn't, but he doesn't say that. So he starts off with humor. But he's very, very serious about his request. He says, I want you to rebuild the temple. And so I think what this does is it gives us the first step in order to live a better life. Here it is. Stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. There, if we're honest, we all make excuses, don't we? We all do. We make excuses of why we can't live a healthier lifestyle so we don't diet. Right? We make excuses about why we can't save money. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've made some excuses of why you can't be closer to Jesus. And so I don't want to talk about how we all make excuses. I want to talk about the underlying reason behind our excuses. Here's the first one. We're fearful. We're fearful. Fear comes in all shapes and sizes. There's the fear of the unknown, the fear of making a mistake, a fear of being vulnerable. Like the children of Israel had a legitimate fear. That's why they were making excuses why they couldn't build, because they were afraid of the Samaritans who resisted them 16 years ago when they tried to rebuild the temple. 
They were afraid of the Persian army because they believed that if the Persian army got wind that they were rebuilding the temple, that it can cause a problem for them and it could be catastrophic. But either way, God said, I want you to do this. Here's what I want you to know. If you're following Jesus today, you have to grow in the discipline of moving forward and doing what God asked you to do, even though you're fearful. Even though you're fearful. Some of you are facing a very, very difficult circumstance in life, and God has been telling you, I need you to do it. I need you to move forward, and you're giving him all these excuses why. And what I think we can do is when you fear fearful, some of us need to recall a memory. Recall a memory. When is the last time that God came through for you? When is the last time he made a way, opened a door, gave you an answer, did something you didn't anticipate? When you fear like you feel like your faith is failing because of fear, use an old memory to fortify your faith and move forward. Are y'all with me? But on top of that, some of us just need to commit some scripture to memory. Because when you fear, fear when you feel fearful. Sometimes you need to quote to yourself Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will trust you. Like fear is going to come, but I'm not worried because I trust you. Why? Because I trust in your provision. I trust in your hand. I trust that you are going to make a way even though I don't understand. We got up here and we just sang. I will not lean to my own understanding. I don't know why this is happening. But one thing I do know, if God is for me, then there's no one that can be against me. All right? So that's number one is we're fearful. Here's another reason why we make excuses. We're facing opposition. We're facing opposition. A lot of times, people receive opposition, and they tend to think, oh, this is just a sign from the Lord. He doesn't want me to do it. The the children of Israel were the same way. They were receiving opposition from the Samaritans and from the Persians, right? They were like, oh, it just got hard. It just got difficult. Listen, we need to understand that the closer you get to doing something, that is at the matter of the heart of God, the more opposition you're going to face. You're going to, it's going to happen. Like, like you need to understand that re- receiving opposition is oftentimes affirmation that God is with you. Did you think it was going to be easy? Did you think that the enemy was going to hand you and push back the darkness for you? He's not, you think he's going to defeat himself on your behalf? No. What God is saying is that when you receive opposition, it is often affirmation that I've got your back because that's when I shine the most. Are y'all with me, church? I'm glad you're in a good mood. Here's the third one. Uh, We're prone to procrastination. I'm so glad you're smiling about that. So glad. You know what we do? We take the word tomorrow and use it like a wand. We're like, dirty dishes vanish. Hard conversations disappear. Emails? (laughs) Hi, these emails. You thought. Housing projects? (laughs) They can wait patiently. Why would I do something today when I can wait till tomorrow? Right? Then, of course, tomorrow comes and what happens? You fought tomorrow be tomorrow, then, doesn't it? Because a lot of us fall under the weight and the pressure of tomorrow. You'd be like, why do I have all these things to do? Because you kept kicking the can down the road. Jesus says this. He says, today's troubles are sufficient. Right? So what he's saying to some of us is don't take tomorrow's troubles and bring it into today. 
But I think the opposite is true. Don't take today's troubles and bring them into tomorrow. Because you will end up sabotaging your tomorrow when God gave you the grace to do what he's asked you to do today. Some of y'all are like, well, Pastor, I'm just waiting to get uh, motivated here. I'm waiting for the internal spark. I'm, I'm waiting to, to feel like doing it. Guess what? In the words of Jim Jones, the rapper from Dipset. Jimmy, who was my hero when I was younger. I wanted to get a, a perm and wear Averex jackets too. Didn't work out for me. What, what was I saying? Jim Jones. Oh, in the words of Jim Jones, when you can't stay motivated, stay consistent. The reason that your diet fails is because you haven't made a consistent pattern in your life. The reason that you're not achieving some of the goals is because it's not a consistent pattern in your life. The reason that your prayer life is terrible is because it's not a consistent pattern in your life. You cannot expect to do something masterfully the first time. You have to make it a pattern in your life. And that is what's happening with the children of Israel. Is that they are procrastinating. Right? And here's what I'm saying is that you are sabotaging your tomorrow when you fail to utilize the grace that God has given you to take on that task today. Are y'all with me? Y'all still amen? Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad, because this is the fun part here. Here's the second thing you need to do to 10X your life. Put God first. I don't really like that language. I think it's kind of keeping God in the center of all things, but I knew you would relate to that. Here, here it is. Remember, they were in Babylonian captivity. You remember that? I told you that earlier. They were stripped of their Jewish identity and their religious identity. And so God frees them, and he says, hey, now that you have your newfound freedom, the first thing I want you to do is go back and rebuild the temple. Now, somebody here is wondering, why do we need to go back and rebuild the temple? Why is the temple one of the first things that God asked them to do? Well, you have to think about it in ancient Near Eastern terms. Whenever you had a temple, they thought it was the intersection between heaven and earth. So in other words, they thought it was the God who lives in heaven. They believed it was his earthly home. And so whenever you built a temple to your God, it was a sign and symbol that his power and his presence relied or resided in that particular place. And so the reason that they built these edifices was not simply because of Jewish life and religious identity, but it was letting the world know that the true and living God, Yahweh, the one that delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, the one that's making a way and helping people navigate through this, he and he alone is worthy to be worshipped. Are y'all with me, church? So it's important in that time to build temples to do true worship. And so get this. So on one hand, it's a matter of worship. On the other hand, get this, it's a matter of evangelism. Because it's evangelistic because you're erecting an edifice for the true and holy Yahweh because his goal is to bring people who are not a part of the covenant family into the family of God. So what was happening was because they weren't worshiping and because they weren't building a temple, it was subverting God's plan to reach the nations through his redemptive plan. Are y'all hearing me? Does that make sense? And so this is what's happening here. And so God is like, oh, you're trying to subvert my plan. I want to save your cousins and your family members, but you're too busy building houses. You won't build my temple, but there's another temple you're building called your house. And so what he's saying is there's a consequence to this, right? By worshiping, by, by the lack of worship of God, 
by the lack of making God their priority, they're running into an issue. And you know what's really nefarious? Is they're using cedar wood. If you know anything, you know that cedar wood is not plentiful in Israel. This was the cedar wood that David asked Tyree and Sidon to bring over so that they can erupt, so they can build the temple. And so what I'm saying is the same wood that was supposed to be used to build the temple, they're taking that wood and using it to build their homes. So in other words, they are misappropriating funds. They are, if this was the IRS, they would be locked up. You should bring charges against them right then and there. And so they're doing this. They got this high-end living. It says that they live in paneled homes. You see that? Oh, a paneled home. You know what a paneled home is? It's when you take the artesian cedar wood and line it all away around your house. It's like granite countertops. Hallelujah, somebody. It's like quartz countertops. It's like crown molding and high-end finishings and, and furniture from one of the high-end stores, like the custom furniture. That's, that's what he's saying. Now, let, let me just say something to you. God is not opposed to you having nice stuff. You better have them. Like, you have some nice stuff. It's all right. But he's opposed to you putting that nice stuff ahead of him. Now, here's what happens. When you fail to worship God, when you fail to make God your priority, here's what happens. You want to write this down. It's going to pop up on the board. When you don't make God your priority, he'll eventually become your problem. Let me say it again. If you don't make God your priority, eventually he'll become your problem. In the words of Dr. Derek Thomas, um, when you refuse to work for God, he won't let anything work for you. Let me help you here. I got some Bible. You want some Bible? Here, here it is. The first thing, the first consequence is the results won't match the work. Look what he says. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. So on your account, the skies withhold the dew and the land its crops. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I have blocked the hydrologic system and won't allow the evaporation from the Sea of Galilee and the, and, and, and the Atlantic Ocean to condescend on your plants because you've been disobedient to me. You see how serious God is about this? Can I give you a modern example? You've been working your tail off at that job. Don't even have one no more. It's just, it's just all gone. Just work the tail down to the bone. Work it down to the bone. You, you've been working and pouring your life into that career and it still feels empty and hollow. You, you've been working diligently, and you still don't have anything. And so to compensate, you said, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to entertain myself. I'm going to go out to games, and I'm going to watch TV, and I'm going to watch movies, and I'm going to eat out. But still, there's this deep longing in your soul. You work so hard, but don't have a lot to show for. Here's the thing. A lot of us are blaming our lack of success on the wrong thing. You're like, oh, man, the, my lack of success is because, oh, I haven't built my brand well enough yet. Oh, man, I need to get a creative director and see what they can do is help me with marketing. And if they help me with marketing and capture the everyday lives and then I can put those cool filters on it, then I'll build my brand and then I'll be successful. Somebody is like, well, if I just keep working hard and working up the economic ladder, like it's going to work. Christians say, well, the reason I'm not successful is because of the devil. It's, it's the devil hindering me. I'm under attack. It's spiritual warfare. And God is like, nah, it's not your boss. It's not your haters. It's not your opposition. It's not your ops. The reason you're not successful is because of me. I'm him. 
And the reason that you're getting those meager results is because you won't make me a priority in your life. Go ahead and build your brand. Go ahead and get all the followers. Go ahead and make all that money. I'll make sure that you have to spend it on unexpected expenses. Go ahead, build up your followers, and I'll show you that I know how to destroy that platform in a bit. Go ahead, do what you do. Keep on trying to make those results. Keep on trying to work out and be fit and be a fitness model. I'll give you an injury, and I'll let you lay up in that bed till you realize that I am the priority in your life, not your platform, not your money, not your success, not your career. It is me. I'm the reason. You know what God is saying? I'm him. I'm the person that's caused you problems. L listen to me. What is God holding back from you that he wants to give to you but won't because you won't be obedient to him? What is it? He's been asking you to give for a long time. You haven't. He's been asking you to be a part of a church that's life-giving. You haven't yet. He's been asking you to start that business and, or stop shacking up, put a, put a ring on that young lady's finger instead of treating her like a, a girlfriend or an option in this season until you get a better one. He's been telling you, he's been telling you that your body does not exist for you to use it for sexual immorality. It's so supposed to be used as a tool to worship me, but you're, let me not go, let me not say that. But all I'm saying is, is that God is not going to bless your disobedience. And he will make everything work against you until you're obedient to him. I'm talking to my Christians in the building today, if, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, if you're far away from Jesus, welcome home. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I won't say this next week at homecoming Sunday. I promise you this. But that's what it is. Some of y'all want the blessings of God, but you don't want to have the corresponding obedience. He's like, I'm not going to bless you. I told you to stop speaking to your wife that way, and you won't stop. I told you to get some counseling to deal with your emotional health, and you won't. You show up here, you serve, and all those things, but deep down, last night, you were just watching porn. I just saw you on Pornhub. I just saw you doing some illicit. What I'm saying is you cannot expect public blessings when you have private disobedience. I'm just trying to help you today, church. I'm just trying to help you. Not only that, not only that, but you're going to struggle to find contentment. God has blessed some of us with so much, but you're just not happy, are you? You're not happy. A, a person that's content is happy what they have while they pursue what they want. But many of us are discontent in life, and we're discontent, and we were talking about this in the back, we're covetous because the devil has fooled us into believing that if we got that thing that we really wanted, that it would bring us satisfaction. And God is saying, oh, I want you to get that thing so you can see that it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to bring you joy. It's not going to bring you lasting happiness. Now, you give me a few dollars, it's going to make me happy for a little bit, but eventually you got to pay taxes. And eventually your friends are going to have their hands out, which is fine. We want to be generous. Eventually you got, what I'm saying is those things you think are going to bring you lasting satisfaction only bring you momentary joy. And so what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to let you be discontent. Get as many clothes as you get, want to get. Get as much money. Here's another consequence. Your investments fail. Look what he says in verse 6. The wage earner, the person that goes to work every day. The entrepreneur puts his or her money into a bag with holes in it. I don't know about you, but putting your money in a, holes, with a bag with holes in it is not a smart thing, is it? Right? It's, it's not the smartest thing. What he's saying is, is I will not allow you to take the financial steps that you want if you don't prioritize me. 
And, and let me just be honest with you. I think that some of the reason that Christians are in financial straits is because they will not prioritize God in their finances. I'm just going to be honest with you. And the, the disobedience, I mean, and, and then discontentment and financial gain is the result of that. Here, here's a very, very simple principle. Jesus says it. Matthew 6, says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, seek me, number one. If you make me your priority, then I'll add these things to you. What things? Provision. I'll give you companionship. Some of you are desirous of marriage. Some of you want financial stability. He's saying, seek me first, and I can do all of those easy things. But I think the converse is true as well. Seek first the kingdom of self, and all of these things will be taken away from you. That's what he's saying. So here, here's my last point, since you're on the amening mood and the wowing mood today. Work hard. Work hard. Y'all like, come on now. Work hard. Listen to what he says through Haggai in verse 8. He says, go up to the hills. That sounds hard. He says, bring down lumber. That sounds difficult. He says, build the house and I will be glorified. Like, that sounds very, very difficult. But let me just tell you that I know that we're trying to be, learn how to be efficient in life, but there is no substitute for hard work. There's just not. Everything that you want in life is uphill. You want that body to look, to look right. You want to be snatched and all that. Diet pills aren't going to work for you. Getting some sleep will and working out is going to be difficult, though. You want to have some financial discipline. It's not a magic pill. It's something that you're going to have to work hard for. And that is what God is saying to us. Like the things that you want in life, you have to work hard for them. But this is what I really want to talk about. It's easy to hold a grudge. It's harder to forgive someone. And what I think God wants us to do is to do the hard right instead of the easy wrong. Like we, a lot of us are settling for easy wrongs instead of doing the hard right. It's easy to get into your feelings when somebody says something weird to you. It's hard to not hold a grudge and forgive them and show them the forgiveness that God has shown you. It's, it's easy to continue to go in debt. Some of y'all know that. You be like, just swipe the card, right? Just, just swipe it, right? We don't even have to swipe it now. All we do is just put it over the machine and it goes, boop. I don't even have to take it out of my wallet anymore. That's easy. We're coming up to Christmas. Some of y'all are going to go in so much debt and then have to come to the church and ask for financial help in, in 2023. I'm saying, don't spend money that you don't have to buy gifts for people that you sort of get along with. No, y'all not feeling that? Like, my baby's getting these harachis. Uh, let me go on. All right, all right, no problem, no problem. Just trying that out there, trying it out. It's hard. It's hard to climb out of debt. I mean, it's, it's easy to just spend. It's hard to climb out of debt and live below your means. Like, it's easy for you to focus on yourself and not focus on making a difference, right? But, you know, as you look at this, let's be honest. We look at the children of Israel here, and we like, <laughs> they are awful. Don't you say that deep down, like your self-righteousness? It's like, this, these folks are, tri- they the worst. They disobedient to God. They're not following God like that. At least I'm trying. I get on the Bible app every now and then. Every now and again. You know, I, you know, I jump in the pray first. I don't get there at 630 and I don't keep my camera on, but I'm there at 647. I'm there. Right? No, I'm not throwing any shots. I'm just giving an example. Give an example. Give an example. They're terrible. But you know, I think the thing that plagues them is the same thing that's plaguing us. 
is that deep down, they didn't want to do the hard work because they love comfort. Oh, they love comfort. They love to live a life of luxury. They love to live a life of ease and, and leisure. And I think the same thing that applies to them often applies to us. We long to live a pleasure-filled, pain-free existence. And can I just be honest with you? Some of y'all are too enamored by your comfort. You're too enamored by it. You know, like some Christians say, oh, I really believe the gospel. I love Jesus. Jesus is great. Died on the cross for me. We love the gospel, but we don't want one that inconveniences us. Like, like, we say we want the gospel, but we don't want the type of gospel that causes us to get up earlier in the morning to create life-giving environments and doing setup during church. We don't, we don't want that type of gospel. We, 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 don't, we, we don't want the type of gospel that impacts our finances. We, don't, we want a tame gospel. We want the type of gospel that impacts our souls but doesn't impact our schedules. Can we just be honest in here today? Like we want a one-dimensional gospel that help us when we're weak, but that doesn't have any impact on our wallet. And some of y'all are like, well, pastor, I don't think I'm being comfortable, right? Like I'm sacrificing. I'm doing what I need to do. And I would say that many of you are. But I would say a lot of us, we idolize our comfort. And the call for us to reach people that are far from Jesus is so much greater than, what you, than your comfort in laying in the bed. Let me, let me just say something. Your comfort, let me help you. It's overrated. It's overrated. You know what it makes you? Lazy, unconcerned, and self-absorbed. It, remind, it, it, remind, it helps you when you are in a relationship with Jesus and he's pushing you out of the comfort zone. That's where all the growth occurs. That's where he helps you mature. But when you're comfortable, a lot of us get self-absorbed and we forget that God has, has created us to live a life of purpose where we're at impacting other people. Are you hearing me today, church? That's what I'm saying. Is that that's the gospel that many of us really believe in is the gospel of comfort. And if that's true, then the converse is true, which is the only sin that we really consider a sin is inconvenience. It's inconvenience. And some of y'all are like, well, you know, at the church, y'all, you know, pastor, y'all ask us to do a lot, right? Like, we join the team and all that. Like, I'm, my life is transforming. Hold on, Simon, I'm not ready. Just give me a second. Give me a second. Just to, give me, I got you. I got, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Every, I always get yelled at for doing that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Gosh. Let me just say this. <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to embarrass him. Like, why y'all drawing attention to it? Y'all drawing all this. Y'all drawing all this attention to it, making a man feel bad. He's going to send me an email. People watching online, they're going to send me a text message like, hey, I thought that was really ignorant what you did to musicians. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I'm glad y'all are in the laughing mood. I'm really happy. That means, listen to this. If you want a gospel that doesn't impact your calendar or your schedule, then that means that convenience is your real gospel. Let's just be honest. If you want a gospel that doesn't impact your schedule, doesn't have you getting up early, doesn't have you give it sacrificially, what it means is that personal comfort is your real cross. If you want a gospel that doesn't impact your pockets and all that type of stuff, it means that coziness is your real Calvary. Let me just help you understand something, church. That when you have an encounter with Jesus, it should cause you to have a radical reorientation of your priorities. Don't worry, I got some Bible. Mark 1 16 Jesus meets the disciples on the seashore of Galilee he says follow me and I'll make you fishers of men but hold on didn't they have an established career 
Didn't they just go out the night before and fish? Didn't they have a solid career and a solid source of resources? But now you're telling me to leave what I'm comfortable with and follow you, Jesus, into the unknown? And Jesus is like, yes. Yes. You know why? Because I'm worth it. I'm worth following. And what I'm saying is some of us are so comfortable when God is like, I want a radical reorientation of your priorities. I, I demand more than to be fit in the schedule. You need to work your schedule around me. I'm the center of all things. You're not. Your comfort doesn't matter. Well, pastor, aren't we pushing people too hard? Like, like, aren't we pushing people hard? Like, I come here and I serve and I'm a little tired from the weekend. So, you all right? You all right? We don't say that when we're spending time on our phone four to six hours a day. We don't say that when we're watching Netflix. Like, we, it's funny that when it's time for us to do things for Jesus, we talk about we can't fit it into our schedule. But when it comes to building our own paneled houses, we are so willing to be generous with ourselves. I'm just trying to help you today. I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying. Can I push it a little further without y'all getting offended? Is that all right? Oh, y'all in the mood for this? Oh, you want some static? All right, I got you. I'm glad you're in the cabin mode. Let me talk about your self-care real quick. Let me talk about your self-care real quick. Let me, since, since everybody loves self-care and there's like this self-care phenomenon now, like we got to get pampered and all that. What I think self-care, I think self-care is good. Let me say that. You should do a level of that. You know why? Because you need to make sure that you're revitalized and you need to make sure that you're preventing disease. You don't want to work yourself down to the bone. But the reason you do self-care is so that you can gather your energy to do what you're supposed to do. The things that God has called you to do. That's the purpose of self-care. There's a biblical principle for self-care. It's called the Sabbath. The Sabbath is when they would take time to cease from their work, didn't feel the need to create, and they would rest in the abundance and power of Jesus. Self-care can be biblical, but some of us have turned self-care into an idol and an excuse to be lazy. We use it for an excuse. Oh, I can't. It's a self-care day. I got to take care of myself. But those things are intended to help you do what God has called you to do better, not as an excuse for you to not do what God has called you to do. Self-care has become nothing more than self-idolization, self-worship. Frankly, you spend too much money on yourself. Nobody has, a lot of people come and they repent to me, right? They'd be like, oh, you know, pastor, I did this, I did that. No one has ever come up to me and said, pastor, I'm sorry because I spent too much time, energy, and effort on my appearance. Or I spent too much money on myself. You know why? Because we are so drawn into this idea that we are the center of the universe and the center of the world when Jesus says, I am. You can start playing, Simon. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to close it now before I push my buttons too far. Jesus is saying, I'm the center of the universe. It's not me. You need to resign from that job because you're not that good. You're not that good. But I am. And so somebody's wondering today, well, all right, Pastor, you beat us up enough. You beat us up enough. What, what are we going to do? Here, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do these things in your own power. I want you to rely in the strength and the power of the godly one who is Jesus that can help you stop making excuses. The one that can help you work diligently. And the one who wants you to put him first. Here's the thing, we've all made excuses, myself, myself included. We've all made excuses. We've all failed to put God first. We've all been lazy and not working hard. Like we've all failed to reach up to God's perfect standard. And because of that, we should experience punishment. But what's beautiful is God knew that we couldn't reach up to his standard. 
So he decided to come down to ours. And what Jesus did was he sacrificed his life on the cross of Calvary for us. You know what he did? He didn't make an excuse. He didn't make an excuse why he couldn't leave, why he had to stay in the comforts of heaven. He didn't make an excuse of why he could be born in a cradle in the dirt. He didn't make an excuse. Like, he, he didn't. Like, he sacrificed his comfort. He left his heavenly home, and he saved us from an eternal punishment forever. And you know what's beautiful about Jesus? Not only does he save our souls for heaven, but he's also helped deliver us from illegitimate bondage while we live on earth. Here's what you need to know. Jesus has freed you from feeling like you're only valuable if you are successful. Jesus frees you from that critical internal voice that tells you that you're not going to amount to nothing and that you won't be anything. He frees you from that reverberating memory of your past when someone told you you weren't going to make it. He says, no, you're my son. You're my daughter. He frees you from that addiction that you're in. He frees you from the power of sin. Jesus doesn't just want you to make it to heaven. He wants to free you so you can make a difference and an impact right now. So I want to just let you know, if you don't know Jesus today, I want to invite you to come back to him. I want to invite you to come to him. Because here's what I know about the Lord. He wants to give you new joy. He wants to, he wants to heal your broken up life. He wants to heal you from your father traumas and your mommy issues and the wounds that you experienced when you were a child. Jesus is like, I want you to come to me and I promise you I'll fix your broken life. And I won't put a band-aid on it. I will give you penicillin deep in your soul and I will help you eradicate the disease of sin that is trying to hurt and harm you. Maybe you're following Jesus today. Here's what I want to ask you. The text says, think carefully about your ways. Have you thought carefully about your ways? Are you choosing comfort over the worship of God? Are you prioritizing God in your giving? Let me ask you this. What's that thing that God has been asking you to do that you've been pushing off? You've kicked it down the road. I want to encourage you to be obedient to that. The thing that God told you to do the best thing you can do is do it. That's it. You honestly don't need another sermon. You don't need another pep talk. We are really, really informed people. But we need to make it a practice. So let me pray for us. I beat us up enough. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you're loving and kind and merciful. Father, I pray that you would help us to take next steps, Lord. We, we idolize ourselves at times. We choose our comfort over you. Lord, we choose comfort over the kingdom. We do things and we act in certain ways that are not godly, Lord. And we just ask you to help us right now. Lord, for that person that's far away from Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. Knock on the door of their heart. Pull them towards you so that they may know you. And so their lives can be repaired and they can be a part of your family and a follower of you. Lord, for those who are already following you, I pray right now that you would help them to be obedient to what you have called them to do. To not be focused on building their transient paneled houses, but that they will put their effort and energy into building things that will last for an eternity. Help us, oh God, for we need you. We honor you 
and we praise you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, why don't you say amen. Can we put our hands together for the Lord?